Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Your holy word, we ask in much earnest that it will run unhindered, unencumbered, and be glorified in our very midst. We pray, therefore, the Holy Spirit to greatly anoint both the preaching and the hearing and thus the receiving of your word today. We pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit will work great conviction, great comfort, great challenge, great encouragement by the truth of your holy word. These things we cast upon you, believing, trusting you now, to fulfill them according to your will in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to take the word of God and let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. The next sermon in our series in John is still, as I say sometimes, in the cooker. Um, half of the preparation was done this week, but the Lord was not giving me further illumination regarding this text. And so, obviously, I went to prayer, and as I've learned in 34 years of preaching God's Word, just because you're preaching through a book in the Bible doesn't mean that you don't ask the Lord each and every week, Lord, what would you have me preach? The reliance on the Lord must still be as real, as definitive, as constant as if you were not preaching through a book straight through. And so this passage of Scripture is what came to my mind, and it is one that I have covered some years back, but it is obviously one that needs to be revisited again. Now, for the majority of you who are here, you have never, ever heard this sermon, so it's going to be brand new for you. And as I told my dear wife, I said, well, after the sermon this morning, I'll have no friends left. Um... But I don't preach God's word to make friends. I preach God's word to make disciples. So if you are more of a faithful disciple to Christ, even though you don't like me anymore, that's okay. Um, I, I'll live with that. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 1 and reading to verse 6. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, 
And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, authoritative word of the living, eternal God. The story is told of a certain young bachelor who was in constant pursuit of a prospective wife. The only problem, however, was that every time he brought such a young lady to his home, his mother criticized her unmercifully. The young man was at his wit's end when a friend offered this advice. Find someone like your mother. So he looked and looked until he found a clone. She looked like his mother. Her gait was like his mother. She talked like his mother. Indeed, she even thought like his mother. It was really quite amazing, quite astonishing. So he took her home. The next time he saw the friend who had given the advice and was asked, well, how did his mother like the girl? The bachelor answered, it was great, he said. It was absolutely fantastic. He said, my mother loved her, but my father couldn't stand her. (laughs) The driving point of this humorous story, beloved, is that everyone is a critic. Everyone is a critic. It doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. With all of us, we have something to criticize about Someone or something somewhere at some time. No one, absolutely no one is uncritical about everything. In fact, while you may not be critical about something which I criticize, yet if we keep the conversation going long enough, there will be some subject that surfaces which will ignite in you a torrent of criticism. The reason for this is due to the fact that criticism is a part of living. It's a part of living. Let's face it. You cannot do anything without being criticized by someone. Whether you're selling newspapers, knitting a sweater, baking a cake, working your farm, mowing your lawn. There is someone there in every part of our life who has a personal criticism to express. But where we need to be very cautious and most careful is that our criticism is not driven by the mere insidious desire to just find fault in another person. Being critical, now listen to this, being critical is not a bad thing. If it is framed in a way that is constructive, that is helpful, and thereby beneficial to the other person. However, when we are critical just for the sake of being critical, then we are guilty of manifesting a cruel, judgmental, censorious spirit. This kind of criticism is not just wrong, but sinful because it violates God's supreme command for how we relate to all people everywhere, that command which says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. 
Now, with this in mind, I want to turn your attention this morning to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, where our Lord Jesus teaches us in the most memorable language when it is wrong and when it is right to be critical. When it is wrong and when it is right to be critical. This actually will frame the outline for our two major points emerging from this passage. So, to begin with, let's consider first when it is wrong to be critical. Look with me once again in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. There is perhaps no single passage of Scripture more cited by both unbelievers and believers in our day, and yet more misunderstood and misapplied than the opening words of Matthew 7 and verse 1, Judge not. But while this one text of Scripture is so horribly misinterpreted and misused, nevertheless, securing a correct interpretation of this verse is one of the most vital necessities at this present time in the church and in the world at large. Why is this? Well, I believe this question can best be answered by Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he, in fact, preached on this very passage in the mid-1950s. What is so amazing about Lloyd-Jones's words is that they are more relevant today than when he first expressed them to his own generation nearly 70 years ago. I want you to listen carefully to the doctor's observation concerning why we need to desperately understand the real meaning of Matthew 7 and verse 1. I'm going to quote him at length, so pay very close attention. Different periods in the history of the church need different emphases. And if I were asked in what in particular is the need of today, I should say that it is a consideration of this particular statement in Matthew 7 and verse 1. This is so because the whole atmosphere of life today and especially in religious circles, is one that makes correct interpretation of this statement quite vital. We are living in an age when definitions are at a discount, an age which dislikes thought and hates theology and doctrine and dogma. It is an age which is characterized by a love of ease and compromise, anything for a quiet life, as the expression goes, it is an age of appeasement. That term is no longer popular in a political and international sense, but the mentality that delights in it persists. It is an age that dislikes strong men because it says they always cause disturbance. It dislikes a man who knows what he believes and really believes it. It dismisses him as a difficult person who is impossible to get on with. There have been ages in the history of the church when men were praised because they stood for their principles at all costs. But that is not today. Such men today are regarded as being difficult, self-assertive, non-cooperative, and so on. 
The man who is now glorified is the man who can be described as being in the middle of the road, not at one extreme or the other, a pleasant man who does not create difficulties and problems because of his views. Life, we are told, is sufficiently difficult and involved as it is without our taking a stand on particular doctrines. That surely is the mentality today, and it is not unfair to say that it is the controlling mentality. You see how relevant that is? This observation by Lloyd-Jones was saying about the misinterpretation of Matthew 7 and verse 1 is that in order to follow what Jesus commands by not judging, we must never be critical of what other people believe or critical of how they live. We therefore must be a people who have suspended our critical faculties in relation to other people, turn a blind eye to their faults, pretending not even to notice them, and to avoid all criticism and to refuse to discern between truth and error, good and evil. For the culture we live in today, as much as the culture of Lloyd-Jones in the 1950s, this is how they spin the words of Matthew 7 in verse 1. To judge not is paraded by the vast majority as the mandate to never evaluate, to never scrutinize, to never reprimand anyone for anything. We should just be all-inclusive and accepting of what anyone believes and how they live because, you know, Jesus did say, judge not. But beloved, let me ask you this question. Is this really what Jesus meant when he commanded that we judge not? If we only take a few moments to compare Scripture with Scripture, it can be proven quite easily that our Lord never meant by this imperative that we are never to be critical. First of all, just take what Jesus says right here in Matthew chapter 7. We don't even have to go out of this chapter. When he commands us not to give dogs what is holy nor to throw your pearls before pigs. Let me ask you this question. How can we possibly recognize when a person is a dog or pig in relation to the truth of the gospel if we do not use our critical faculties to discern if in fact they fit this biblical description? Or take what our Lord says in Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. How can we obey this command without being critical and discerning of the character and doctrine of certain people? Then, of course, there's Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 17, where our Lord instructs us as the church to practice church discipline and thereby preserve purity in the church. But how can we do this? How can we do this if, if unrepentant sin is never confronted and the church member never called to repent? If we think that judge not suspend such confrontation against unrepentant sin, then we will in fact be in violation of the very principles which Jesus himself set forth to maintain spiritual, doctrinal, and moral purity in the church. Furthermore, there's Paul's warning in Romans chapter 16, 17 and 18. To keep our eyes on those who cause division and hindrances contrary to biblical teaching. 
Men who, Paul tells us, by their smooth talk and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the naive. To such false believers, Paul says, we are to avoid them. But again, how can this be done without discernment and a critical evaluation of the character and doctrine of such men? Moreover, how do we obey God's word in 1 Corinthians 5.11, where we are not even to eat, not even to eat with those who have been disciplined out of the church and remain unrepentant in their sin, if we have not judged and concluded that such persons are in fact acting like unbelievers and have barred themselves from the covenant and fellowship of a local church. Beloved, the point should be crystal clear that to judge not has nothing to do with standing for the sake of the truth and righteousness by confronting those who oppose it with both false doctrine and ungodly behavior. So what then did our Lord Jesus actually mean when he commands us here in Matthew 7 and verse 1 to judge not? Listen very closely. What our Lord is forbidding is that we must not be a censorious critic. We must not be a censorious critic. What does the word censorious mean? To be censorious is to be inclined to find fault. It's a fault finder. A fault finder. In other words, while we must be critical in the sense of using our spiritual and moral discernment governed by Scripture, yet we must never be hypercritical where the drive of all our ambition in relation to others is to find nothing but fault. For such a person like this, they can truly be described as a judgmental person. And their character and conduct has many identifiable traits. Let me just give you a litany of them. For instance, they are cruel, cynical, self-righteous, arrogant, and malicious. They always assume the worst about others and impugn the worst possible motives behind whatever someone says or does. They are deeply prejudiced against anyone who doesn't meet their own personal standards. They also position themselves as superior to everyone around them and always speak down to others as being inferior to how they see the world. They take no interest in hearing the whole story about a given situation, but with only a small fraction of the story, they draw their conclusions and make their pronouncements without the facts because they believe their assumptions are equal to the truth. Above all, a judgmental, censorious critic values more his own opinion and circumstances than anything else. And it is by his own personal opinion that he judges and condemns other people. In short, the judgmental person is someone who plays God with other people. They play God. Should I be surprising, therefore, that our Lord Jesus condemns this kind of judging when he says, judge not. Our personal opinions, 
personal prejudices, personal standards, have no power, no authority to judge and condemn anyone. Man's ultimate destiny and the fate of his own character is determined and judged by God and God alone. So then, to be judgmental, to be censorious, is to take God's place and sit on his throne, as it were, and elevate ourselves as the ultimate authority and judge over others. This is wicked. This is evil. It is a sin that we can see not only in people of the world, but very sadly and tragically, we see it even in Christians. In fact, we need to remember that our Lord's command here to judge not, who is it spoken to? It wasn't spoken to the masses, to the great crowds. It was spoken to his disciples, to just his disciples. But with this imperative to judge not, Jesus then goes on to issue this warning. He says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. There's a twofold implication in these words to the judgmental person. In the first place, there is a divine implication where the measure of judgment God uses for us will be the measure we have used in our own judgment of others. This does not mean that God will use the same vindictive principle that we've been guilty of using, but rather Jesus is saying that the judgment of God on our lives will be based on our lives and how our hearts express themselves in thoughts and acts towards others. Adding another layer to this, John MacArthur wrote the following. He said, when we assume the role of final omniscient judge, we imply that we are qualified to judge, that we know and understand all the facts, all the circumstances, and all the motives involved. Therefore, when we assert our right to judge, we will be judged by the standard of knowledge and wisdom we claim is ours. If we set ourselves up as judge over others, we cannot plead ignorance of the law in reference to ourselves when God judges us. So the bottom line is this. We set the standard in tone, if you will, for our own final judgment by our judgmental conduct in life. And we prove by our judging of others that, that we know what is right. Hence, if we do not do what is right, we the judges, if we don't do what is right, well then guess what? We condemn ourselves. We condemn ourselves. One good biblical example of this is James chapter 3 and verse 1. Listen to this. James writes, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with what? Greater strictness. With greater strictness. Now, what does that mean? It means that if you become a teacher, setting yourself up as a religious authority over others, and act accordingly you will be judged by the authority you claim. Do I claim to have an exceptional knowledge and grasp of the Scriptures? Then, well, then guess what? I will be judged accordingly. What does Jesus say in the Gospel of Luke? He says, to whom much is given, much is what? Required. Much is required at the final judgment. But in the second place, 
There is a human implication to these words of our Lord in Matthew 7 and verse 2. And I'll let Charles Spurgeon explain this because I cannot improve on what Spurgeon says on this matter. In his own commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, he writes this. He says, If you impute motives and pretend to read hearts, others will do the same towards you. A hard and censorious behavior is sure to provoke reprisals. Those around you will pick up the peck measure you have been using and measure your corn with it. You do not object to men forming a fair opinion of your character, neither are you forbidden to do the same towards them. But as you would object to their sitting in judgment upon you, do not sit in judgment upon them. This is not the day of judgment, neither are we His Majesty's judges, and therefore we may not anticipate the time appointed for the final assize, nor usurp the prerogatives of the judge of all the earth. Well, with this warning against the censorious spirit, Jesus goes on now to expose just how hypocritical such a person really is. Look at verses 3 through 5. Our Lord says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. These words of our Lord give us a picture that are as comical and cutting as possible. Here are two men who each have a problem with their own vision. One man's eyesight is merely impaired by what Jesus describes as a speck lodged in his eye. It is a small, irritating splinter which he is hampered with. But the other man doesn't simply have impaired vision. No, he is completely blind due to a monstrous log gaping out of his eye. What is so humorous in this picture is that the man who is incapable of seeing anything is actually attempting to remove the minuscule splinter from the man who, in fact, can see to some extent. The situation Jesus is describing here is an absolutely absurd parody. But the main point which our Lord is making by this picture is the most common problem in people who are judgmental of others. Listen to this. People who are judgmental cannot see the true nature of their own sin, yet they always exaggerate the sins of others. People who are judgmental cannot see the true nature of their own sin, yet, yet, they're always exaggerating the sins of others. But what's worse than this is how the judgmental man or woman, now listen to me, is how they will pretend, and I'm saying that quite deliberately, how they pretend to be reaching out in kindness to help the other person with their sin problem. As Jesus mimics the, this charade of kindness, let me take the speck out of your eye. And this, of course, is where their hypocrisy shows up the most. Because the truth is, now listen to this, the truth is, 
they really don't care about the speck in their brother's eye, but only in exalting their so-called moral superiority over the other person. Giving us more insight as to what our Lord is teaching us here, R. Kent Hughes wrote this very searching observation. Listen to this. He says, We find it so easy to turn a microscope on another person's sin while we look at ours through the wrong end of a telescope. We use some strong term for someone else's sin, but a euphemism for our own. We easily spot a speck of phoniness in another person because we have a logjam of it in our own lives. Furthermore, we especially hate our own faults when we see them in others. Wrath toward the speck in someone else's life may come from the suppressed guilt over the same massive sin in our lives. Log-toting speck inspectors are hypocrites, says Jesus. They do not care at all about the speck in the other person's eye. All they really care about is building up themselves in their own eyes. The pattern is universal. self Righteousness turns to censoriousness, which produces a false benevolence, which in turn produces contempt. I have seen the most unchristian aggression practiced by pompously humble people who come with a concern. Our churches are full of these kind of people, riddled with them. Well, beloved, based on what our Lord teaches here in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, let me ask you this. When is it wrong to be critical? When is it wrong? That's the leading question. Here's the summary answer. It is wrong to be critical when our criticism is aimed only at the sins of other people while never taking into consideration our own sins, which should be our greatest concern. I'll say that again. It is wrong to be critical when our criticism is aimed only at the sins of other people while never taking into consideration our own sins, which should be our greatest concern. This is the sin of censoriousness. This is the sin of being judgmental. There's nothing constructive, nothing beneficial, nothing redeeming when we are critical of others in this way because our criticism is nothing but a self-serving campaign to pounce on the sins of our brethren while holding ourselves above any correction of our own sins. In short, a judgmental person calls for others to repent while he himself never repents of his own wrongdoing. Well, while we see then the wrong way to be critical for Matthew 7, now let's address the second matter. Our Lord Jesus turns us to consider when it is right to be critical. Now, I will say, before I get into this exposition here, 
This is what a lot of Christians miss about Matthew 7, 1 through 6. A lot of Christians will focus on what I just focused on. Although in many respects, they still wrangle it. They still misinterpret it. But they miss, they miss the rest of the passage where Jesus tells us and shows us when it is right to be critical. As I said from the very beginning of this sermon, criticism is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing in and of itself. Okay? It's a part of living. But there's a right way to do it, and there's a wrong way to do it, and Jesus is teaching us right here in Matthew 7 the right and the wrong of it. So now let's look at when it's right. When is it right to be critical? Look at me in verses 5 and 6. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. There is a right time, there is a right way to be critical of others and thereby seek to call them to repent and correct what is wrong in their own lives. And here in Matthew 7, verses 5 and 6, our Lord sets forth when it's right to be critical in two different ways. Number one, it is right to be critical when it is carried out in a gentle and humble spirit. In a gentle and humble spirit. Jesus tells us, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What should stand out to us from these words to begin with is that the speck in our brother's eye needs to be removed. It needs to be removed. This speck represents some kind of sin, which is hurting our fellow Christians. So, so it needs to be removed. This brother or sister needs to see it for what it is and be helped in how to repent and put it to death. Okay, That's the first thing that should immediately show us of what Jesus is teaching and what's going on here. But before we can, before we can be that brother or that sister who comes to the aid of this fellow believer and effectively calls them to mortify their sin, Jesus says, we must first, first, take the log out of our own eye. We must first take the log out of our own eye. Hmm. What does that mean? Oh, it's real simple. In fact, it's easy in fact, it's so simple and easy to understand, but it's very difficult to do. Before we correct others, we must first correct ourselves. That is the point Jesus is making. Before we correct others, we must first correct ourselves. Before we call others to repent of their sin, we must first be repenting of our own sins. In other words, we need to see that there is no sin which needs greater attention and thereby greater correction than our own personal sin. It is only when we have been thoroughly ruthless and critical of our own sins, thus doing everything it takes to put them to death, that we will be able then and only then to see clearly 
and how we can take the speck out of our brother's eye. You see, when I have been hammering away at my own sinfulness and striving to repent of what I know I am guilty of, then and only then will I be able to, to actually approach my fellow Christian in a spirit that is truly humble and gentle when it comes to correcting whatever their problem is. Because what I will see about myself, now listen to this, what I will see about myself in comparison to other believers is that I am just as bad of a sinner who needs just as much forgiveness as they do. In that frame of mind and spirit, there is no room for self-righteousness. In that frame and spirit of mind, there is no room for haughtiness, where I would dare think I'm better than someone else. No, the only thing that would be on my mind is that I am a far greater and worse sinner than this dear brother or this dear sister who I am about to correct. Only then... Only then is it right to be critical. Only then. Having judged ourselves in the light of God's word, we can then see clearly with gentleness and humility how to correct the sins and shortcomings in others. You say, well, that takes a little time. Indeed it does. It takes self-examination. It takes a lot of prayer. You just don't go charging in to a situation seeking to correct someone of, of what may be a very legitimate sin in their life. But just go charging in without having first checked yourself. Without having first examined your own heart, your own life. Because you see, hmm... It's very possible that what you're about to go and correct them over it may perhaps be the same exact sin you're guilty of and you've never dealt with. Oh, we've got to be so careful. Because you know what? It doesn't take any effort on my part to be haughty and prideful. Because it takes no grace to be that. We're all a bunch of hardy, listen, we're all a bunch of haughty, prideful, arrogant people by nature. By nature, that's who we all are. That takes no effort. But it takes a ton of grace to humble yourself before God and get real with Him about whatever your sins are, and you deal ruthlessly with that before you even take the first step in going to a brother or sister to correct them. Because I can tell you this. Have you been there, done that, and done it the wrong way? You go into a situation like that, <laughs> you have no idea what they may have on you. You have no idea as to what blind spot you're blind to that they may point out in you. And then you'll be really eating some humble pie. So you first deal with yourself. You first 
take the log out of your own eye before you dare, before you dare go to that other person to remove the speck out of their eye. And you know what's really implied here by our Lord is real simple. None of us are without sin. None of us. None of us are without sin. That's the reason why when a church is going through a process of church discipline with a church member, all the other members should be very humbled by what's happening. Because all the other members should be saying, well, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Who am I? Who am I to think that I could not be guilty, that I could not fall as this brother or this sister has fallen? Who am I? You see, church discipline works in a local church when it's done biblically and rightly to sanctify the entire body and to make everybody realize, to humble them so much so that they, that they look at the situation and they say, that could be me. That could be me. And that's why there should be brokenness and there should be a godly sorrow in the entire church in a situation like that. And before I go to this last point, for any of you who are thinking, man, who does Pastor Kurt have in his crosshairs? <laughs> all of you. <laughs> because we're all guilty. This sermon is not for a select few. This sermon is for all of us. It's for all of us because frankly, I've never met a Christian in 35 years of walking with Christ. I have yet to meet a Christian who has not been guilty of being judgmental. We're all guilty. So, just want to clear that up. This far into the sermon and you're, you're thinking, you're looking around, who is it, who is it? Now just take a mirror and look here. And at that point, I've lost all my friends. But secondly, it is also right to be critical when our criticism is discerning as to the character and conduct of others. It is also right to be critical when our criticism is discerning as to the character and conduct of others. Our Lord warns us in verse 6. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, the dogs and pigs in this passage represent unbelievers. Let's be clear about that. They represent unbelievers who cannot and will not be corrected and called to repent by the gospel we give them. Okay? So that, that's the context here. Instead, their attitude and actions to the gospel is one of outright disdain and utter, and utter hatred, whereby they not only renounce, they not only renounce the truth of the gospel, but they openly deride it and they viciously attack those who share it. Because again, look at what Jesus says. He says, they trample those, those gospel pearls, they trample them under, under their feet. But then what do they do? He says, they turn to attack who? 
you. They turn to attack you. So of such people, Jesus says, in essence here, you know what he says? Don't even waste your time with people like this. Don't even waste your time. But of course it must be said that um, we won't know if an unbeliever is characteristic of a dog or a pig unless first we attempt to reach them with the gospel, right? I mean, we've got to first attempt to reach this unbeliever with the gospel of Christ. But if in that exchange they treat the precious pearls of gospel truth as if it's nothing but trash for the garbage dump, then in that moment we should have the discernment to see that at this time and place they are, listen, they are unteachable, which makes them unreachable. They are unteachable, which makes them unreachable. Observing this circumstance, one writer says this. He says, when people not only reject the gospel, but insist on mocking and reviling it, we are not to waste God's holy word and the precious pearls of his truth in a futile, frustrating attempt to win them. We are to leave them to the Lord, trusting that somehow his spirit can penetrate their hearts as he apparently did with some of those who at first rejected the preaching of Paul and the other apostles or leaving them to the just judgment of God. Adding further light to this truth, Charles Spurgeon, again, he wrote this. He said, when men are evidently unable to perceive the purity of a great truth, do not set it before them. You are not needlessly to provoke attack upon yourself or upon the higher truths of the gospel. You are not to judge, but you are not to act without judgment. Count not men to be dogs or swine, but when they avow themselves to be such, or by their conduct act as if they were such, do not put occasions in their way for displaying their evil character. Saints are not to be simpletons. They are not to be judges, but also they are not to be fools. Well spoken. So, when is it right to be critical? When is it right? To fellow Christians, it is right to be critical only when we can correct them with humility and gentleness that perceives, listen, that proceeds from a heart that is thoroughly broken and repentant over our own sin. That's to fellow Christians. But to the unbeliever, to the non-Christian, our criticism must be discerning and discriminating between those people who are open to hear the gospel and those who only wish to trash it as garbage. For those unbelievers who treat the holy truth of God as profane, we must leave them, but with a broken heart and with an earnest prayer in their behalf. Well, as we draw this study to a close... Let me leave you with at least two principal lessons that we should glean from Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. The first lesson is this. As Christians, we must guard ourselves from being judgmental by, listen, by believing the best about others until, until we have facts that prove otherwise. Believing the best about others until we have facts 
that prove otherwise. So what does this mean? This means that we must never judge people based on our assumptions. We must never judge people based on rumors, hearsay. What we should desire to see and understand about other people is the truth based upon facts. The truth based upon facts. And biblically speaking, now listen to this, biblically speaking, such facts are ascertained in two ways. Either by the person himself or by the testimony of reliable witnesses. And I emphasize witnesses in the plural. Because as the scripture says in both the Old and New Testament, only by the mouth of two or more witnesses is a testimony established. But beloved, without this, we are really in the dark as to the true character of anyone. Without this. So we should treat others, and here, here comes a really novel idea. I'm sure you've never thought about this. We should treat others in the same way we want them to treat us. Hmm. Sounds familiar. Oh, yeah. Didn't Jesus say something about that? Oh, yeah, right here in Matthew chapter 7. Indeed, he did. In fact, it's in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. St. Augustine said that's the golden rule. The OKJV translates, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Wow. What a novel idea. Treat others the way you want them to treat you. That is so simple to understand, isn't it? But is it easy to do? No, it is not. It takes grace to do that. <laughs> but let's, let's put that in the, in the context of this sermon today. If we don't want other people judging us wrongly by their assumptions and assertions of our character, which have no factual basis then we must treat them in the same way. We must treat them in the same way. This is loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And when we love others in this way, hey, I got good news for you. When we love others in this way, then we will conquer the sin of judgmentalism. When, 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 we, when we love others in this way, then we will be free from the sin of of censoriousness. You want to put that sin to death? Then you treat others the way you want them to treat you. you. You make a judgment of others in exactly the way that you would wish they'd make a judgment of you. You treat them the same way. Lesson number two. And this is really the kicker. We need to be as critical of ourselves than we are of others. We need to be as critical of ourselves than we are of others. I've already covered this once in our study, but it is worth repeating. As important and biblical as it is to hold each other accountable and correct one another when we stumble into sin, yet, yet the, the first person who needs correcting is our own selves. We need to first remove the log out of our own eye. 
rather than focusing on what everyone else is doing, we need to focus first on what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we guilty of? So, beloved, let me ask you this in the light of all of this. When was the last time you thoroughly examined yourself in the light of God's word and thereby repented of the sin God showed you was there? I'm not asking anything that's extraordinary in the Christian life. I'm asking you something that's part of the normal Christian life. But when was the last time you really did that as a Christian? How much attention are you giving to the need of repentance in your own life? Versus the need everybody else has. Before we go correcting our brother or sister, we must first be correcting ourselves. You realize if God pulled back the veil and showed us how much sin remains in us, even as his people, we couldn't handle it. We could not handle it. There's so much that he doesn't show us. But along the way, in the lifelong process of sanctification, those things are revealed. But if the Lord was to show us all at once, this is how much sin remains in you, we may cry out for the Lord just to go ahead and kill us and take us home. I mean, it would be so overwhelming. So overwhelming. Before we go, correcting a brother or a sister, we must first be correcting ourselves. That is God's will. That is God's will for each one of us because that is God's word to all of us, beloved, to all of us. And this sin of censoriousness, even in, listen, even in the healthiest most robust biblical churches, that sin still lurks. That sin is still there. We are all capable. And, and frankly, as I said earlier, we're really all guilty. We may not be guilty of it at this moment in time, but we've been guilty. And so it takes much grace for all of us as God's people to learn how to not be critical in an unrighteous way, but how to be critical in a righteous way. How to, how to, how to show godly criticism versus ungodly criticism. It takes so much grace but God, in his mercy, in Christ, has given us that grace, and so we have no excuse. We have no excuse. If anybody says, but I just can't, well, you can because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So you can, by his grace. By his grace. Let's pray. Our holy and righteous Father, we are... We are most grateful, Lord, even for the hardest of things that your word lays upon us, that holy pressure it puts on our consciences as your people.
binding us to the whole truth and not just part of the truth, binding us to your whole counsel, meaning that, Lord, you show us things that even we don't in ourselves really want to see. But we thank you, Father, that even this very morning, you've opened our eyes to see many things, things perhaps we've never seen about ourselves or things that we know are there but we're not dealing with and we're not being aggressive with in a repenting way. And so, Lord, we trust in you now for the grace, the grace that we all as your children need each and every day to treat others the way we would want them to treat us. But not only to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, but also to love the body of Christ as Christ has loved us. And, oh, Lord, we ask your forgiveness for how far we have fallen short of that great and awesome command. But we thank you for the grace to repent. We thank you for the grace to pursue such love toward others for the sake of Jesus and always in his name we pray. Amen.